The Annex, a sociology podcast. I'm Joseph Cohen from the City University of New York. Our guests today are John O'Brien from NYU Abu Dhabi. John is the author of Keeping It Halal, The Everyday Lives of Muslim American Teenage Boys. Netta Magbule from the University of Toronto. Netta is the author of the acclaimed Limits of Whiteness. And Iman Abdelhadi from the University of Chicago. Iman recently published The Hijab and Muslim Women's Employment in the United States in Research and Social Stratification and Mobility. Today, The Lives of Muslim Teen Boys. Our discussion was recorded on March 3rd, 2020. We are here with John O'Brien, sociologist at NYU Abu Dhabi and author of the award-winning Keeping It Halal, The Lives of Muslim Teenage Boys with Princeton University Press. Welcome, John. Thanks very much. Great to be here. And we have two very special guest hosts for this interview. First, a friend of the show who I'm always grateful to have join us, Netta McBooley from the University of Toronto, award-winning author of The Limits of Whiteness. Hi, guys. And Iman Abdelhadi from the University of Chicago, who recently published on the employment experience of hijab-wearing Muslims. It's great to meet you, Iman. Thank you so much for having me. So excited to be here. And we're here to talk about Keeping It Halal. It's a book about how young Muslim boys navigate the tension between integrating a society that I guess has a lot of hostility towards them and, you know, the struggle to stay true to yourself and your family and your heritage and your religion. It really, it got some great acclaim over the summer. So congratulations, John. Thank you. Thank you very much. A great book. Can you tell us what's the book about? Keeping it halal. Yeah, sure. So the book, um, and I think many qualitative researchers can feel me on this, the book uh, really came into form kind of as it went. It took shape uh, as I got into the field. So what the book ended up being about was different than what I thought it may be about, I think, which is often the case, um, but especially in the kind of research I do, which it's funny. Before I wrote the book, or right after the book came out, I had a name for it, which was abductive analysis, but that term didn't exist uh, before I was done, which one shows you how long it took to write a book, but also uh, it's helpful that people are kind of talking about how to do this kind of research. But anyway, so yeah, it's basically ended up being about how these um, young men I got to know uh, in a mosque uh, really kind of thought about, talked about, and dealt with the everyday kind of tensions they felt um, navigating different spaces of being an American teenager and being a practicing Muslim, which aren't actually at odds, really, I find. Um, and they don't really feel like they're at odds either, but some people in their lives kind of treat them as if they're at odds. Um, and so it really became about that. Really, When I went into the field, I wasn't sure what it was going to be about, but I knew there was something interesting happening kind of with these kids at this site, and I wanted to kind of figure out what it was. And just to give some context before we dig into the weeds, for listeners who aren't in the United States or, you know, haven't had contact with uh, Muslim people, can you just give us a sense of what Muslim teenage boys face in terms of like the challenges of you know, just, just being themselves? Yeah, sure, exactly. So basically, it's, you know, and as, as with everything in sociology, it's complicated. I don't know if you guys have this, but I always tell my, my students, any sociology paper could be told, it's complicated, because there are many sides to the story. And I think there are many different kinds of Muslims in the US. And, and Iman and I have actually done some research on this as well, digging into the diversity of Muslims in the US. So right there, 
Um, you've got many different kinds. And even at this mosque, one thing that was interesting about it was the kids were from many different backgrounds. So some were Arab immigrants, some were African immigrants, uh, some were South Asian immigrants, but they all kind of had uh, this Islamic identity which bonded them. Um, but in other neighborhoods or other cities or other instances, that may not have been the case. So kids may have used ethnicity as their major identity or or even what school they went to or something else. But because these kids have fairly religious parents who kind of want to keep them in the, the practice, that's kind of the site that I was interested in. And it's important to mention that, that there are varying degrees of practice within Muslims. I mean, one thing that gets kind of glossed over about Muslims for people who don't know them is that they think they're all, as I think uh, Janan Reed put it, hyper-religious. So there's something mm-hmm. about being a Muslim that means you're always thinking about religion all the time. And that's all you're doing. Whereas we know with many, any religion, some people practice it very much, some people very little, some people kind of in the middle. And so, but these kids were more on the practicing end. And that's intentionally what I was interested in. Um, so what these kids faced because of that was uh, sometimes getting stereotyped at school for, you know, having to fast during Ramadan or having names that sounded unfamiliar. And of course, when different things happen in the world, different terrorist attacks, um, getting made fun of at school, they would say things like, you know, is Saddam Hussein your uncle or, you know, is Osama bin Laden your father or, you know, all these ridiculous um, kind of taunts. So they face that. Um, but more what they face, I found, is just this kind of more mundane everyday issues of kind of how do I feel true to to this faith, to this religion, and also the really important pressure that I found is kind of a social force of itself in teenage years of being cool, of being accepted, uh, of being part of kind of mainstream American culture as defined by mm. other kids at your school or what's on, um, well, now it would be TikTok, but then it would be <laughs> YouTube, you know. Uh, so it's really, I think it was, it was it helped me to dig down into really the social location of these specific basically life course stage of these kids and say, okay, at this point in your life, there's a lot of pressure to kind of fit in. Yet at the same time, there's something about these kids that could really make them seem at odds um, to, to some kind of quote unquote mainstream American people. For people who have very limited experience with, I mean, it's, it's a sociology podcast, so this is going to be rare, but you know, I, I I'm from a, a small backwoods town. There are people who have never, had contact with the Muslim and they say, well, why don't they just assimilate? Like, why don't they just, you know, why don't they just assimilate? What's the big problem? Can you sort of flesh out to us, like what the expectation of this type of full assimilation involves and and why somebody, you know, why it might not be a reasonable expectation? Sure. I mean, it's, you know, as with all things, it kind of depends what people mean by that. And I think the assumption even in that question is often that, again, people have kind of an image in their mind of what a Muslim is like. And I think your point is is a really good one that it's often people who have the least contact with Muslims that have these certain ideas, as we know from intergroup theory and sociology, that often when people get to know one another, these kind of stereotypes fall away. But especially with Muslims, because they're not a large percentage of the population, it's very likely that you might not know a Muslim person, but have heard a lot about Muslims through various media media channels, you know, whatever you're reading on the internet, your relative who thinks X or Y. So you could have a lot of preconceived notions with a very little, as we like to value in sociology, empirical evidence of a Muslim person themselves. Um, so in, in part, actually, why I wanted to write this book was in a sense to give some people a window into, you know, here's some, here's some regular Muslim people kind of going about their lives um, and just to have a sense of what that might be like. And many people were, including, by the way, reviewers of the book, by reviewers, I mean, in the the book review process, in the process of getting the book published, being quite surprised that, wow, these kids are just kind of 
leading normal lives. And so <laughs> the amazing surprise on the part of, or even colleagues in grad school, the, the, the endless surprise at the mundanity of Muslim life in the U.S. <laughs> was a constant reminder to me that most people really have this ingrained exoticism when they think about Muslims, um, which again, I can relate. So I should say I'm actually a Muslim convert, um, which is part of how I kind of got into this. As I tell my students, I didn't convert to write the book. That would be really quite a commitment on my part. Um, <laughs> that is not what happened. <laughs> I, uh, I didn't go that far. I converted when I, and it's actually in the book as well. I, you know, I converted when I married my wife and I was interested in religion and spirituality myself, which is part of what kind of led me to this project. But, um, but that did help me kind of see, I, I've actually lived life as a non-Muslim and as a Muslim. And of course, even though I don't look like, you know, I look like a middle-aged white man from the U.S. who has Irish background, people wouldn't guess I'm Muslim by looking at me, but, um, but I do have that kind of experience of seeing both sides of these groups and seeing that this the amazing difference between what people think uh, is happening and, and, and what's actually happening. And so, yeah, I think when it comes to assimilation, I think another important point is that many Muslims in the U.S. are very happy with their life in the U.S. in part because of this basis of America being founded on a principle of freedom of religion, even if that hasn't always been practiced just that it's an idea that's that's there, um, I think many Muslim people feel uh, a sense of, of thankfulness for that. Now, again, that doesn't mean they don't face harassment or discrimination, but just the fact that that's even in kind of some of the founding documents of the U.S. makes people feel like, well, there should be an expectation that religion is something that's that's valued. Now, another thing I should mention is religion itself is something that sometimes isn't always valued in the academy, in sociology, in you know secular corners of American life. So in some ways, that's been another challenging part of this product is where does it fit? And I always joke about this isn't about the book, but about my own experience when I converted to Islam, you know, having gone to a very secular, you know, prestigious college, the issue wasn't that I was Muslim with my friends, but that I was openly religious. So that's a whole other dimension of things. Um, that's another way that people kind of can be stereotyped. But anyway, I've said a lot. So I come to this book as like, I think I've had three different roles regarding it. Like this is out of transparency, I'm just going to mention. Um, I've taught it since it came out, like the day it came out, my students at U of T like wanted to do independent studies on it until we got a course on the books called Sociology of Anti-Muslim Racism, which in some ways like drew its proof of concept by the fact that so many of my students wanted to do independent studies reading this book. So they all say hi, right. by the way. <laughs> J-O-B is like a god to them. Um, so, um, so I come to this book as a teacher of the text. Um, I reviewed it for AJS and I was also so very happy to be on a Author Meets Critics for this book, uh, I think like a couple summers ago or so. Mm -hmm. um, so John, like, you know how much I love it. Um, but to, I think, convey um, to other folks, like what's so special about it, I want to make sure the listeners here, like there's a lot of sticky concepts that you create in this book and their concepts that at least, you know, my students are really enjoying the process of testing it, for example, in the setting of Canada or mm. trying to apply it to other minoritized communities. And mm. so these are sticky concepts that I think um, can take our theorizing quite far. So um, at least I was hoping maybe you could tell us about one of them, culturally contested lives. Um, how did you develop that? What's been useful about that for you? 
Yeah, sure. No, no, thanks a lot. Um, and I'm glad to hear that because I think that's one thing that I'm always thinking with ethnography. You know, there's there's a lot of comparative ethnographies these days, but it's funny. In my training was really about kind of going deep at one site, and I think the advantage of that um, is that you can really take it to other places, like like you said, Nada, and kind of. You know, I'm always kind of reading other ethnographies and comparing. Or how does this compare to this side of this situation? So, I'm glad to hear that. Um, yeah. So, culturally contested lives was really, uh, and it's something I also also tell my students, and it is kind of out of this grounded theory, abductive analysis process. I, I, I advise students on senior thesis all the time, and they say, "Well, I don't know what my paper's about yet, and it's due in three months." And I'm like, "Guess what?" I wasn't really sure what this book was about, you know, uh, until 90% of it was written. And I think what that means is you're really letting the data kind of shape uh, what your framing is and what your whole story is. And I think it became clear after a while that this idea of culturally contested lives, meaning that it's not kind of insurmountable. It's not a conflict. It's not a psychological kind of dissonance. So if you look at a lot of the early immigration literature in sociology, it's about like these people are struggling and they're, they're always, you know, uh, they're kind of schizophrenic and they're, and they're divided. And, you know, even I remember presenting, you learn a lot by presenting your work and people would say to me, oh, aren't these kids just kind of suffering because of the burden of, and not really. I mean, they're actually kind of having a lot of fun. And I think that was another important point I wanted to come out here was, that this isn't a struggle all the time. And in some ways, given the right context, which I think in my case meant some adults who are open to kind of, um, you know, having them kind of experiment with different ways of, of growing up, having a kind of supportive community, having other friends going through the same thing, allowed them some space to kind of play with these different identities and try out, well, what does it mean to, you know, listen to this kind of music as a Muslim or to try to, you know, have early adolescent romantic relationships as a Muslim or to do these things that seem very challenging, but if we do them cautiously and kind of work together, we can try to keep the core of, of what we care about in terms of our religion, our identity, as we kind of engage in these things. And so anyway, I think this idea of these two kind of cultural forces pulling at them was the, the vision I had, which was one, the kind of Muslim traditions, um, Muslim, uh, you know, ways of life, Muslim behaviors. Um, and again, of course, as defined locally in their context, and the other one being this kind of teenage life. And I think it was very helpful. I remember one of my advisors saying, which helped me realize that he said, I like how you conceptualize teenage American life as its own social force, which I hadn't thought of. But I was kind of writing it out and saying, oh, right, this is pulling as much on people as as the Muslim side. And I think that's the kind of seeing seeing the invisible poles of American culture, which we can really often miss when we're there. And I think part of my, my even like not living in the U.S. can help me see this a bit more is that, of course, this can be as kind of um, – what's the word, not coercive, but but as kind of pressing on you as the other side. So to say, you know, you're trying to balance these things and, and you don't hate either of them. I mean, people always think like, oh, they're going to run away from American culture or they're going to just cut off their Muslimness or like, it's not that simple. And so I think this idea of culturally contested lives is it's kind of an ongoing process of trying to figure this out. There's not really an end point, um, but but it is kind of an ongoing process that if the people around you can help you think it through, hopefully um, can work out okay, which I think in these the case of these guys, it kind of does. If I can jump in here, I think one of the really great things that the book does too is that you don't accept a monolithic version of American culture either, right? So, you know, one no. of the main examples in the book is um, – 
is about how uh, these boys relate to hip hop and how they use it in a way that sort of negotiates both their what you call cultural rubrics, their uh, cultural rubrics that come from their parents and their mosque, um, but also the cultural rubrics that they feel like they need to enact or or play with as teenagers. Um, and I'm I want to hear you reflect on what it means that they're interacting with hip hop specifically, right? Like what part of American culture are they yeah. relating to and why do you think that is? No, that's a great point. And I think it's, it's good. It's funny how you always have to qualify. And I really tried very, I remember one of the best things ever anyone ever said about this book was one of my advisors, actually, when it was a dissertation said, I like that you're not reifying culture. And I was like, whew, if I have not reified culture, I've done well. Um, but it, it takes a lot of work because like you're saying, what do you mean by culture? I mean, I think it's even hard to use that term, right? But I think, um, right, there, there's various kinds of cultures going on. They're overlapping. And and they're really kind of sub, um, not subcultures, because I read that literature and threw it out, but like kind of lower levels or, or scenes or, or different kind of vortexes. And I think in this case, because they go to a large urban public school in the U.S. in a diverse city, uh, what is American culture to them is already something that might look different than it would by someone living in another part of the country or in another class background or with another racial makeup. So you're totally right, Iman, that um, the American culture that they're assimilating into, which I think is part of what maybe made it not as difficult as it would have been maybe in another another place or at another time, uh, was that the mainstream culture um, had diversity in and of itself. So, so the culture where they lived was already made up of a lot of immigrants, already had a lot of people of color, um, already had a certain kind of sensibility to it. But at the same time, I think why hip hop was drawing them was one, because it was, I mean, not to be ignored, you know, kind of the most popular music uh, there was at the time, both like in, <laughs> yeah. in, 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 in a top 40 kind of sense, but also kind of in a local sense, but also it has some traditions within it that really um, spoke to them. I think both of being, they were both, they, they were all identifiably, you know, kids of color, even though other kids at their schools wouldn't necessarily know where they were from. So it would often be that there's this thing where like the, the kids that the Arab kids would be seen as Spanish in school, be seen as Spanish speakers in school, right? Be seen as Latino. And so they would be, they actually knew a lot of Spanish because people had so often tried to speak to them in Spanish <laughs> thinking they were. Um, and sometimes they would actually hang out with these kids uh, there's this great concept, I think, that Thomas Jimenez has called affiliative ethnicity, where it's almost like you start hanging around with kids who you can kind of blend with in a way, even though they're not really your quote-unquote ethnicity, and that happened with them some. So I think, yeah, they were already in this kind of multicultural stew, which really helped. But even within that, the Muslimness could be seen as kind of othered, um, and I think hip-hop particularly helped because there is this tradition of Muslims uh, in American hip hop, uh, particularly African-American Muslims uh, and even non-Muslims quoting kind of things uh, like um, kind of language and even passages from religious texts in Islam in rap songs. So it became kind of a game for them to kind of identify. They would love to do this like, who's a Muslim rapper? Or, or is this person really Muslim? So they really, so they were doing their own kind of ethnography of like, well, this guy says he's Muslim, but in his video, he's actually drinking alcohol. So, you know, they were really obsessed with this. And I think it was about kind of locating both their tradition in something that was very popular and also kind of feeling like they had some claim to this kind of music. Um, but also they, that really was a way to say to even their parents, hey, you know, you can't say this is completely, you know, not allowed because look, you know, there's some people, very religious people who are kind of doing this. So um, I think that was part of it. 
I loved that part of the book, especially because I felt, well, really, I related to the entire book um, as a, you know, as a um, Muslim American. And I think uh, I'm actually close to these <laughs> um, boys' age. I figured that out. <laughs> I was like, wait a minute, this is about me. <laughs> um, I, um, But, you know, there's this moment when you are, when you see any symbols of Muslimness in pop- popular culture, especially back then, hmm. where it was like, whoa, they know about us. <laughs> like, we exist, <laughs> we're in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when you hear like a, uh, an Arabic phrase um, in, a, in a song or um, when someone's name is a Muslim name, it's really just this like exciting moment. Um, and I feel like you did a really good job of showing that visibility but I also think that there's this sort of theme in the book of being American as also enacting counterculture or resistance right or that that's their sort of their form of it um, and you see that even in the you know you have a chapter on prayer where they're sort of constantly trying to autonomize their relationship to it even while at the same time you know doing what their parents want them to do, which is to pray regularly, but they're just constantly pushing a sort of, this is ours, we're doing it our way. Mm-hmm. Yes. Amen. I was just open to the page where um, John does this beautiful analysis of the American prayer, quote unquote, mm. right? Versus yeah. like the the more authentic way that the parents or the elders would prefer that the boys prayed, which was like in a more collectivist, group-minded way. Um, so I'm so happy you brought this up. Yeah, I'd love to hear more, John. Yeah, no, I totally, I have to say, that was one of those moments as an ethnographer where you're kind of like, wait, did that just happen? Because the way, it's almost like there are these moments in the field where you say, okay, this is definitely going in the book. And and it was even labeled kind of in front of me in the sense, I always joke in my in my class when we read Sidewalk and how, you know, Hakeem, one of Mitch Denier's subjects, says to him like, oh, I'm the eyes of the street or whatever. Like, like he literally gives the ethnographer like the sociological term to use. And I think in this case, it wasn't quite that clear, but it was, um, so I can tell the story actually. And and I think in it's one of these things that in retrospect, again, like you kind of do your field work, you take your best field notes, and then you kind of try to make sense of it. And I think what I realized is one of the trends that was happening a lot, one of the cultural forces happening here was about individualism uh, and autonomy and agency and how that's a very, American, we, we write about it in these kind of high-minded theoretical and abstract ways, but in fact, it is a way that people actually move through the world. It's feeling independent. I can do what I want. Even you think of just like advertising is often about this, like get, you know, get, order this hamburger exactly how you want it. You know, when do you, I want to, you know, I want to order this thing at 3 a.m. Like I can do it, you know? Um, and this is just part of kind of American culture and consumer culture as well. But I think these kids, um, and it's very much part of American teenage life, is, is feeling that way, the freedom of, you know, jumping on your skateboard and just heading out. And, you know, and so I think seeing these boys kind of have that part of their life and wanting to just run around and do fun things. And so this one day, it was a great moment to witness this because they wanted to go out and go to the store and buy something. And it was right when the call to prayer was happening, which is when at least when their parents are around, they're supposed to go pray. And so it was really this moment of literal tension in the moment of, well, we really want to just go and head out, but we saw someone's dad and they know it's prayer time and we know it's prayer time and we should probably go pray. And so they went in to do it. But uh, as Iman alluded to, they kind of did it in their own group. 
you know, the, the prayer is usually supposed to start at the same time and you wait for everyone to assemble. It's, it's supposed to be better religiously to do it together as a group. And they kind of went before the older men had started, I think, due to a misunderstanding. And so these older men got really upset and said, you didn't wait for us. You're supposed to pray together. And then this is the moment where this guy says, um, he's saying something. I think it was actually maybe in Arabic. So I didn't know what he, what he said. I don't speak Arabic. And I asked the kid later, oh, what did he say? And he said, oh, he said, when you pray by yourself, that's the American prayer. And I was like, <laughs> okay, there's there's something to this, and then I and then I said later, well, what does that even mean? And he said, oh yeah, when they say when you pray by yourself, it's like that. And so, you know, I'm not claiming like this is the beginning of some like religious reform where now you know people will do this more or whatever, but it does show this kind of they they didn't want to not pray. You know, I mean, they they maybe didn't want to pray right then, but in general, they they did say their prayers, but they wanted to do it in their own way that felt more independent to them. And I saw a couple other instances of this where they would really feel like they were kind of able to do that, but also try to feel like they were doing it on their own time in their own way. You know, I think I have part of the book where they're always going to prayer like at the last minute because they <laughs> really just don't, which is also very teenage. Now that I, my son's getting towards those years, I really get, like I'll get there, but I'll get there on my own time. And so this is a very real for And I want to say one more thing, which I think is something that I've been thinking about a lot is if you are of, you know, there's a lot of talk about kind of studying communities that you're part of or not, you know, and this is an interesting example because I, I converted to this religion and then you know, seven years later, I did this ethnography about it. So I was clearly not a, a lifetime insider. And I think I could have missed a lot by not being one. But on the other hand, I do think there are certain things about me having the experience of trying to recently figure out how to balance my own American identity or past life with being a Muslim and these kids doing it as well, um, that kind of I could relate to them. And, and I'll give you an example that even the even I said it earlier in this interview, even when people ask me, like, oh, why did you become Muslim? And, you know, I, I convert to Islam to marry my wife in part, but I also was very interested in the religion on its own terms. But what I realized is whenever I would answer that question to people, I would always emphasize the my own choice part. I would say, oh, I was really interested anyway. Oh, yeah. And then my wife wanted to be Muslim. You know, so even in my own discourse, I was emphasizing independence over kind of some kind of religious commitment or tradition, because that's more acceptable to my more kind of American, cult sure. culturally, quote unquote, American secular friends. So I think feeling that tension, even within myself, made me realize, wow, this is a real, this is a real thing that people face. I have a question. In, in the Muslim world, is there like an American Islam not uh, not religion wise, but is there a recognized like in in Judaism, there's American Jews and they're mm -hmm. definitely their own thing. Is there a similar sort of identifiable thing that people recognize with American Islam? I think there's probably different strains of it. And, and one thing that's that's very different, I think, is there's, you know, an African-American Muslim tradition right. um, and more of a immigrant Muslim tradition. But even that, of course, is very fractured. So I think it's hard to say. I think if you ask someone, at least, for example, in this part of the world where I live, what they would probably think of is there are certain religious leaders who who have become a little bit prominent, um, who, um, who give certain speeches or, or interpretations of Islam in maybe slightly different ways. Uh, than in different in, in these, you know, where I live. And so I think there is a, a kind of maybe people call it like a quote unquote liberal Islam or, you know, a different kind of approach. But in terms of the population itself, I don't know. It's it's so really it is one of the most diverse kind of communities in the U.S. that it's very hard to kind of 
paint it with one brush. So I'm not sure if people even have an idea. I don't know, Iman, do you have any thoughts on that? What people a very young community, you know? Mm. And so I think that, I think there's yeah. an American Islam or several American Islams under construction. Uh-huh. And I think the yeah. question, and I think as scholars, we're constantly thinking about who's constructing these different um, mm. strains and how do they look different from each other? So I think for a while, the sort of idea was that there was one main uh, factional line that it was the difference between immigrants on the one hand um, of various ethnicities, but mostly Arab and South Asian or Middle East and South Asian, actually. And then on the other hand, African-Americans. And now uh, with generational divides, with the rise of American Muslim politics, there's even more complications. And I think those are under construction. But really, I mean, in some ways, it's a demographic story, right? you don't really have sustained uh, critical masses of Muslims in the U.S. on either the immigrant or the African-American end until well into the 60s. And then the immigrant communities, really the the bigger immigration waves were in the 80s and 90s. Um, so these are very much um, questions that are still in progress. And I think we'll yeah. be clearer in the decades to come. But actually, I think that one of the, the, the questions that I have for John to sort of piggyback off that well i always you know don't want to say piggyback because somehow my little muslim my little muslim <laughs> is not halal we're keeping it halal on this podcast i think you meant lammy back <laughs> i swear my mom would get mad she's like piggyback <laughs> it looks so funny because the other day i said to my son i was like when pigs fly he's like that's not halal <laughs> pig walking much more <laughs> But, well, I was wondering also whether you think that in some ways these kids, I mean, we often think of the parents as, and you've pushed me in my Mm. own work to think more more strongly about the parents, right? What are the parents Mm. doing? But we tend to sort of think of them as this kind of stable entity. Mm. But really, to what degree are these kids creating the community as well, right? They're responding to what their parents want. But their parents also don't have really good cultural scripts because for many of them, they're raising the first generation of Muslims growing up in America. So they don't actually know what it means or what it's going to look like. Yeah. And so I'm wondering about that sort of two-way bi-directional process as well. No, that's a really good point. And that's one thing that um, I think is a limitation of the book because I don't have a lot of the parents. I mean, that wasn't really what I was trying to do, but I think Mm -hmm. what I did notice about parents and it's in there to some extent is that not surprisingly, there are different parents who do different things and, and what your particular Muslim parent might do and, and, and how they might act in terms of their expectations of you would have a big effect on, on kind of, of what you did or didn't do, including you could react against it. So one thing I think you're, you're getting at in mind, which I think we see with other immigrant communities as well, which, by the way, uh, it was really helpful for some of the reviewers to say to me, you know, you should really read other ethnographies of other immigrant groups, um, because a lot of these things are quite similar, is that one way that parents can react is going kind of an overly strict route and saying, okay, we're really going to kind of, um, we really want to keep these traditions, we really want you to be very serious about your religion, we're really going to kind of clamp down on things. And that can either keep people kind of um, very tightly under that, which happens sometimes, or they can really rebel against that, which happens also. Then you had other parents who were almost kind of what you're saying, Iman, that two-way thing, were almost kind of responding more to the kids. And you would see this, is that there's one scene in the book where these kids are 
so the whole one chapter of the, of the book is about um, which the title keeping it all comes from is about these kind of like dating muslim dating practices which you know some people would say that's an oxymoron because you, muslim people aren't allowed to date so how could that be going on but you know it's happening in some ways. Um, and so I tried to really write about how that was going on and, and how they kind of balanced this, you know, adolescent ritual, this, you know, hormones, this romantic feelings of this age with kind of the sense that they maybe weren't supposed to do this. But what you saw is that some of the parents were kind of like, just kind of letting it happen a little bit and kind of giving it space and even kind of this kind of don't ask, don't tell thing where it kind of, well, you know, almost kind of conspiring a bit. And I think that kind of gets to what you're saying too, Iman, which is that, the, the the parents themselves were, were doing their own kind of juggling of different expectations, um, maybe of other people in their community. I mean, often it was the, con- the, the, the concern wasn't that they thought there was something wrong with their kids maybe doing some kind of more on the innocent end of, of dating practices, but that other people would look down on them if they found out they were letting their kids do that. So there's all mm-hmm. these kind of directions of expectations, which I think getting back to Joe's question about American Islam, Again, not to bring up the, the contestation again, but there's there's many there's different ideas of of how this can happen and what it might look like, and and within any religious tradition or any religious congregation, there's people who are doing things in various ways, and trying to kind of work it out for themselves. What a fascinating thing to know. So, you're if I'm understanding this correctly, the project of assimilation under some circumstances is like a joint endeavor that the parents and the children are taking on, sort of against a faceless institution or a half family legacy but like it's something that the 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 family is is trying to do together is that is that what i'm understanding i think in some cases it is i mean maybe we have we're we're writing a paper right now but um, (laughs) yeah no no i think um i I think that's definitely happening and i think yeah i could i could draw that out more i mean it's definitely happening kind of across the the kid level like they're actually definitely helping each other do it but i think it's also true that when you think of the family as a unit which was a very important unit in these kids lives that's also happening there or not happening i mean i think that's your mm-hmm. point is that it really varies and and the fan i think there is some writing about this actually like the families that are kind of doing this in the same way as one another uh, is kind of going it's at least kind of more peaceful and then there's some families where i really saw this where uh, parents would kind of clamp down really hard this especially happened and now we're leading to iman's subject with with females uh, they would clamp down very hard and then kids would rebel against it um and and maybe even you know run away or I mean, it would be very intense. So I think, but you're right. I think it's a good point that they're, they're kind of trying to do this in some ways at the same, sorry, trying to do it together, but in some ways without even articulating that to one another, um, because they're still trying to play these family roles um, that kind of let them get through this kind of tricky time together. Fascinating. I was looking at some of the notes I took in the margins of the book, John, and on page 84, which is in the Keeping It Halal chapter four part of the book, Mm -hmm. I wrote, yo, this is parenting advice. (laughs) And it was exactly about um, where we left off the conversation about um, the generations within the house, right? Trying Mm. to to chart this course for the family about where were they going to stand relative to Americanization or questions of assimilation. And so uh, there was a couple places where the note to myself was like, yo, this is parenting advice. And so Mm. I was curious about your journey as a researcher and how it intersects also with the different identities you were developing, right. As like a, as a spouse or as a father, like to what extent did you 
were you aware that you would end up writing something that has lessons for us, right? Right. Well, it's so funny because I, I think I remember somebody saying like, oh, yeah, is this going to be a guidebook? Uh, <laughs> and I was like, no, no, no. I don't know what I'm doing, you know. And as a, uh, you know, as a sociologist, you know, we're just supposed to, I guess Marx would disagree, but, you know, we're describing the world, maybe then to change it, but at least we're first, you know, describing it. And I think, yeah, I think I, I didn't know that. I didn't, especially, you know, turns out that I keep getting older, which is surprising to me. And so do my children. And so, yeah, I had kids who were much younger. My, my son was actually born right around the time that this project started. And so he, and he's my oldest. And so he kind of, the kids knew him and, and that was kind of part of almost the, the beginning of this project. And then, but now, right, he's he's getting closer to the age of these kids. So it's kind of like, right. Uh, what? Do, and other Muslim parents have actually said to me, oh, I really want to talk to you about this or that because, you know, so it. I think, again, like I didn't necessarily think about that at the time, but but I think, and also I have to admit, I felt a little bit in the end of the book, I do write these kind of like, you know, kind of not recommendations, but like, here's how, here's what I think worked well about this, how this community was doing it, right? And a lot of, I think what sociologists try to do is kind of take these informal interactions and see that they're actually, there's something going on here that's actually helping sustaining this kind of way of life that's kind of working for these people. And I think, I think some of the parenting and, and the peer support and the religious leadership of this mosque was actually allowing this to take place, which I think is actually a pretty good model of how it could happen for the most part. But no, I definitely didn't think um, of that at the time, but I've definitely thought about it much more since and and kind of, right, how do you create a space where where these things could happen or how do you look at some of these parents and what they did um, as a potential way to think about it? But it's it's very, it's it's hard because I, I also feel the the stress of these issues at the same time. John, after the experience of following these young men, what were sort of the big lessons you learned about like adolescence or, you know, yeah. just growing up in general or assimilation, just anything, family? What were the big lessons you learned? I mean, I think I learned that a lot of teenage life, and it really you know made me think about my own kind of teenage life, is spent with other teenagers, um, other people your mm. age, other people kind of maybe your background and a lot of what you're doing, what looks like hanging out to the outsider is often trying to kind of work things out and work things out together in terms of, you know, what is this about? How can we kind of be accepted and, and also be who we are? I mean, and in a way, I think that's what makes this story kind of relatable to most people in this phase of life at one level, which is that we're always trying to balance kind of developing our own identity with being part of a larger community or group, whether that be your family, you know, a sports team, you know, something, you know, a hobby that you like, whatever it is. And so I think I really learned the value of these kind of friendships. I mean, it almost sounds corny, but like spending so much time with each other, riding around in cars, just, just whatever, just talking about anything, having people you can do that with and kind of process things with and think about things with and joke about things with is really, really important. And I think it was, it was lucky that these people found each other. Um, there was a place they could do that. And there was a kind of community that could support them in just literally making the space, sometimes just a physical space. I mean, what, what really struck me was having a place to go and spend time, which was a mosque on the outside. But when I really thought about it, it was so unique in that where teenagers spend time, you didn't have to buy anything. It wasn't there. No one was trying to control your behavior very much, at least not in this space. It wasn't adults were trying to tell you what to do all the time. It was just kind of loose enough to give you space to kind of 
be who you were and kind of talk with each other. And that seems small, but I think it was quite, quite important. Um, and I realized how I think that's an important space for lots of people to have at this age. What, what can you tell us about the research site? Can you tell us what city it was? Or uh... I can't, although it's not hard to figure out if you know where I went to grad school, which is easily Googleable, but um, but yeah, it was a large city, and I think th this mosque was a little bit unique, which I also had to kind of specify, and that it was very multi-ethnic. Um, it had people from many different countries, which was actually true of. And I think part of why that happened is because the legacy of this particular mosque, it was one of the first mosques in the area. And getting back to Iman's important point about different kinds of Islams, at that time, the community was so small that in some ways you had to be very integrated just to get enough people together to have a, have a Friday prayer. So the incredible diversity of people within this mosque in some ways went back to that. It's founding in the 70s with people from many different countries. Um, but I think that also led it to a very nice kind of um, – multi-ethnic and kind of open um, open attitude. And it also took a, a job very seriously of kind of instructing others about Islam. So talking to inviting visitors in, you know, putting out press releases about things about, you know, Osama bin Laden doesn't represent our religion, having workshops on what is Islam really about. I mean, almost to a not to a fault, but like to such an extent that the kids themselves would really get tired of having to play this role of kind of representing the religion. Um, but yeah. I think it was also unique in that way. I mean, I think it just goes to show us what we were saying before. It's almost like the representation of Islam is so much more present than the people, like Muslims. <laughs> like there's so yeah. much, there, there's so much, about, sure. there's so much about the image of Islam everywhere, including by people who are Muslims to try to promote one vision over the other, that just getting behind that to see what, actual Muslim people are just doing can sometimes seem hard to find, or if you find it boring, quote unquote, because they're not being Muslim enough, whatever that means to the <laughs> observer, you know? Yeah. But yeah. That's really profound actually about the, the, the idea that kids main life is where their friends are, you know, as a parent, you, you tend to imagine that your life with them and family is just so central, but it's really oh, yeah. not once they hit the teen years. It's mm -mm. so quite a profound insight. I really just uh, wanted to uh, close off by asking, you know, there are people who are going to be interested in doing similar studies of qualitative research of youth or, you know, immigrant communities or whatever, religious communities. What are the big sort of methodological lessons, the big how-to ethnography lessons that you put, walked away from this study having learned? Yeah, um, good question. I mean, I think... It takes a lot of time. <laughs> that won't be news to anybody. Um, it takes a lot of patience. I think one thing that, and it kind of gets to what I just said, I think sometimes there will be times when you think nothing is happening. This is boring. I don't really see what the point of this is. And you really have to kind of sit through those moments because kind of once you get through them, something will happen that will say, okay, that's really interesting. Um, but if you open yourself up to those things, and part of it is what you're saying, gets back to the thing about the friendship group, because once I figured out that was kind of the focus of the study, um, then I could kind of follow that group around. And I have to say the openness of that group to me I don't know how to explain it, to be honest. I mean, they were so open to me. They were so friendly with me. They would text me, you know, at 11 o'clock on a Friday and be like, hey, we're going to this place to have some food. Do you want to come? Even though I was like a in his early 30s white guy who it just it didn't. I don't know. But they were just incredibly friendly. And so I think there's I forget who writes this in ethnography about like just say yes to every opportunity. So I tried to do that. And I think by doing that, I could kind of follow 
the group kind of became like the the site, I guess, is, is how you'd think about it. So even though like it was often at the mosque, it really was often not at the mosque um, because the group itself became kind of the focus. And one of my favorite stories about that is the story when one of the guys was going to go visit this young woman who he was fond of and he was going to go to her house because he wanted to be very appropriate and meet her parents. And so her parents were there. And so the kids all like jumped in this car and I jumped in the car and we drove to the suburbs to this young woman's house and we walk in the door. And so the parents were expecting these, these boys and they were, you know, so they were fine with it. They opened the door, the boys walk in and then I walk in <laughs> and the parents are kind of like, who the hell are you basically? Uh, like, cause you're, resident ethnographer no but i but but the funny thing was then i said oh you know i'm actually which was true i'm actually volunteering at the mosque with the youth program so then they loved me because they're like oh you're going to be a chaperone for these yeah. kids and i was like oh no 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 right so so that was wrong exactly, exactly so that was a definite moment of like oh they think i'm going to like police behavior when in fact that's the opposite of what i'm trying to do so yeah. i had to really explain to them oh i'm kind of doing this project and here's the thing but it's one of those moments where you realize wow i'm really these guys have really let me in to the extent that I kind of forget that I'm, you know, really don't fit here mm -hmm. at all, but it didn't really allow me to kind of catch, you know, catch this rhythm of their life. And, and I did send it to them and, you know, I, I did the whole Mitch Denier thing, like have them read the book. Are they okay with it? And of course it's too sociological for them. They don't really care, but, yeah. um, but I think in general, <laughs> you know, I think it just portrays them as they, as they were and as they are. And I think you, what you really want to balance. And again, I, I keep talking about Mitch Denier, but I think one thing he says that I really like is like, show the people. He has this phrase, show the people. So it's like, even if you're trying to make some kind of argument, if there's a way to kind of get the people to, to shine through that, which can sometimes be hard, then the reader really has a sense of, okay, this is a person actually going through this stuff. Um, not just like an example of a sociological theory, which I think can be hard to do both. Um, but I think if you're kind of committed to following a certain group around, and of course, you know, that means you're only following a few people, but I think getting that humanity across and, and getting to Neda's point about people teaching it, it's amazing. One of my favorite moments ever is someone at UNC Chapel Hill said, you know, I taught this book to my class and a lot of the evangelical Christian kids said, you know, wow, this is a lot of what we go through as well. And so yeah. really showing, I mean, I think sometimes, you know, this gets kind of written off as like, I don't know, corny or whatever, but I really believe that. I really do believe like if you can understand someone else's world by reading a good ethnography, that is to the good. So um, I feel good about that part of the book. Okay. John O'Brien, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. Uh, Netta and Iman, thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks. You've been listening to the Annex, the sociology podcast. A special thank you to our guests, John O'Brien of NYU Abu Dhabi, Netta Makbouli from the University of Toronto, and Iman Abdelhadi from the University of Chicago. We're on the web, sociocast.org slash annex, on Twitter at sociannex, and on Facebook, the Annex Sociology Podcast. Our producer is Lisseth Moreno. Music by Lena Orsa. I'm Joseph Cohn. Thank you for listening. <laughs>